0: Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really grateful that in uncertain days like these, we can still come around God's Word as a church family, and we hope that God's Word will encourage you this morning. We're beginning 2021 by looking at several key passages from the book of Ephesians, which contains some of the most amazing truths in the whole of Scripture about the cosmic and eternal plans of God. But it also gets right down to how that's meant to work itself out in the details of Christians' lives, what it really means for how we walk. And this week, we're at Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32. And do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ forgave you Ephesus was an important pagan city in the ancient world, and the Apostle Paul was writing to a young church that he had founded there. He wanted to give them an insight into the sheer majesty of God's eternal plan and how they fitted into that. It wasn't easy for them to maintain a Christian witness in a place like that, so he wanted to give them a glimpse of the big picture and why that big picture made it so important to live worthy of their new calling. And last week, we looked at how these diverse people who made up the church, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, were now united in the Lord Jesus. And we looked at how that unity should express itself both in our behavior and our beliefs. And in the verses after that, he talks about how the body should grow up into Christ, into full maturity, building itself up in love. And in this morning's verses, Paul develops those two ideas of unity and building up and gets very specific about what that entails. This passage divides up into two parts. In verses 17 to 24, Paul testifies to the new life the Gentile Christians in Ephesus now share. And off the back of that, in verses 25 to 32, he encourages them to live in a way that builds one another up. So in verse 17, Paul testifies solemnly. He essentially puts it on record. He insists on it in the Lord that the Gentile Christians in Ephesus shouldn't walk the way the Gentiles do, because now they are all part of the new creation in Christ. Now, what does he mean walking like the Gentiles? Well, he's really talking about rejecting the knowledge of God. God had revealed His character to the Jews throughout Israel's history, and they were the light that God used to bring the knowledge of Him to the rest of the world. But most of the world rejected that knowledge. And remember, Ephesus was a deeply pagan society. They had a multitude of different gods. It was a city filled with some of the most intelligent people in the world. But far from being enlightened, Paul says they were actually in the dark. They were darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of it. Their natural brilliance was completely wasted. It was futile in the end because they were missing the whole point of life. Hardening their hearts to the gospel blinded them to eternal realities. They gave themselves over to sensuality and impurity instead as if there was nothing more to life than that. But Paul says that's not the way these Gentile Christians should live anymore. That kind of empty and ignorant lifestyle isn't the way that they learned Christ. Now, he doesn't mean they just learned about Christ, but they learned to follow Him. They learned who He truly is, that He not only speaks the truth, but that He is the truth, the absolute truth. And his truth demands a complete change of life from all of us. So what do we have to do? Well, Paul puts it like this. He says, put off the old self and put on the new self. Literally, he says, take off the old human. But what's he getting at here? Well, it's part of a really important contrast that Paul makes all the way through these verses between the original creation and the new creation, between our fallen nature and our new regenerate nature. The old self is really calling back to Adam, the original man, the one who sinned. And when Jesus was on the cross, our old self that is descended from Adam was crucified with Christ. It's like our link with Adam and his fallen humanity has been severed. We are now in Christ. We have a new link with God. And that is absolutely true in principle. But in practice, we can still live day by day the way that we used to. We can still live led by our desires and corrupting ourselves. The prophet Jeremiah said that our fallen hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So, Paul wants us to put off all of that. He literally wants us to take off the old person because that's not who you are anymore, he says. There has been a fundamental change in identity. You are someone new. So be renewed practically, he says, in the spirit of your minds. In other words, instead of walking through life with a darkened and futile mindset like you used to do, let your mindset now be full of God's light through his word. Paul talks about this explicitly in Romans chapter 12. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He gives the power and the ability to think and act in a way that pleases the Lord. But because our old nature is still rattling around in there as well, it means that we have to choose to renew our minds. We have to choose to be who we truly are, to take off the old person and put on the new self to take off Adam and put on Christ to put on the perfect Adam. Now, if you get a law degree and you get your first graduate job with a solicitor's firm, you're not going to turn up to the office every day wearing the old jeans and t-shirt and backpack that you used to wear to uni, are you? You're not a student anymore. You dress up to be like who you have become. And That's really Paul's idea here. During this entire section all the way into chapter six, Paul explores the idea that as the new creation we should be imitators of God and Christ. We are to replicate in our lifestyle who he is so that we have the same family likeness. We have his character, his grace, and his love. And his Holy Spirit is ready to make that a reality for us whenever we make the effort. And don't be deceived, it is an effort. It's a process that doesn't happen all at once. It's a daily discipline of spending time with God, meditating on His Word, replacing the deceitfulness of our unregenerate heart with the beauty of His truth, and then living differently. So, in the second part of this section, in verses 25 to 32... That idea of putting off and putting on, replacing the old with the new, is grounded in very practical terms. Paul encourages them to a new lifestyle that builds one another up, stopping one kind of behavior and starting another. He says, here are the practical implications of of who you are now in Christ having put away all of the falsehood of our old selves and gearing ourselves toward the truth that's been revealed to us and in us, Paul wants that truth to work its way into our personal relationships. And that's the thrust of these final eight verses. And he begins with the importance of speaking the truth. The truth is in you, he says. The truth has transformed you. So, speak the truth to one another. No lying, no more deceit. Remember, a deceitful heart comes from Adam. My favorite Star Trek film is Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. If you're gonna watch no other Star Trek, watch Star Trek II. Whenever the Enterprise is in danger, Spock sends a coded message with false information. And Vulcans aren't supposed to lie. So another character turns to him with a quizzical expression and says, You lied. And Spock says, No, I exaggerated. It can be easy to fall into a habit of exaggerating and telling white lies. So easy that it becomes second nature. After a while, it's something we don't even notice we're doing. Maybe just making excuses because that's a bit easier than being completely honest or holding information back that somebody should really know, but we hold it back because it might cause an argument or make things tense. Nobody gets hurt, so why not? Well, the reason why not is because deceit isn't working out the truth of Jesus. Paul doesn't mean that we should go up to someone in church and tell them we don't like how they're wearing their hair today. He's not talking about just vomiting out whatever we think with no filter. But Christian character is fundamentally marked by speaking the truth in love for one another's good because Christ himself is the truth. And all the members of Christ's body are to operate in that context of truth. So put away deceit and speak the truth. And then next in verse 26, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Now, what does he mean by that? That seems like a very strange expression. Well, anger isn't always sinful. There's times when it's perfectly legitimate to be angry with another Christian. If you've been taken advantage of, or you've been used or cheated in some way, or if someone has dishonored God, or even in your marriage, When one partner has been really selfish about something and they've given no thought whatsoever to how the other person feels, of course you're gonna be angry. The Lord Jesus himself was angry whenever he saw how God's house was being defiled in Jerusalem. Anger in itself isn't sin. But what Paul warns about is being consumed by anger. We can't let our anger fester. We can't so much as carry it over, he says, until the next day. We have to get things sorted out between one another very quickly. We have to do the difficult thing and confront the other person about it so that the thing itself can be fixed. Because if we don't, then it very quickly turns into selfish anger. And it gives an opportunity to the devil to get between us and to disrupt the unity that we were talking about last week to interrupt the working of the body, and to make us useless. We need to resolve very quickly the thing that has made us angry. And then he talks about how to treat one another with integrity. And he uses the example of a thief to illustrate how repentance should impact our lifestyle. Someone who used to steal should stop stealing and start doing honest work. Now, that seems a bit obvious, doesn't it? And some of you might be thinking, well, I can skip over this point because I have never stolen anything in my life. And you might never have stolen someone's money or someone's property, but what about stealing your employer's time, for example? Taking that extra 10 minutes during lunch when you know that your boss isn't going to be back until later on, or turning up late in the morning. Now, I know that very personally, I'm challenged by this verse. All kinds of theft really come from laziness and greed, and Paul says that we are to wholeheartedly repent of that, to stop deceit and to start working in an honest and transparent way, in a way that's marked by integrity, showing the very opposite of laziness and greed, working hard and being willing to share what we have with others rather than just hoarding things up for ourselves. Because that's the only way that a unified body can really be healthy and can thrive. And then in verse 29, he switches to how we talk with one another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, he says. Now remember verse 22. The old self is defined by corruption. The original word that Paul uses here for corrupt is the same word that's used to talk about fruit whenever it's gone rotten what might corrupting talk look like for us? Well, it's talk that damages rather than builds. It's talk that corrodes rather than constructs. And can I suggest that gossip is one of the most corrupting kinds of talk? Gossip can be addictive because it appeals to that part of us that likes to raise ourselves up by putting others down. Whenever I was at Queen's studying creative writing, We used to have workshops every week where a few people would bring along some of their writing and the rest of the class would give a critique of their work. You had to develop a thick skin pretty quickly because sometimes it wouldn't be constructive criticism, it would just be criticism. There used to be a joke that circulated around our class that there was no greater pleasure in life than looking at what someone else had written and thinking, I could do better than that and then pulling it apart line by line without mercy. And that is essentially what gossip does as well. And it's so easy to join in with gossip. But gossip can destroy someone's witness and someone's character. And not only the person who's being gossiped about, but the one who is doing the gossiping. It corrupts you It tarnishes your character. It makes you rotten. Paul says, build others up. Don't break them down. If you know about a mistake that someone's made and you're just dying to tell your friends about it and tear that person to shreds, is that really putting on Christ? Is that the way that Christ treats us? If you don't need to say something about someone, say nothing. Or better yet, say something to build that person up and encourage them. Substitute rotten fruit for good fruit. Bad talk for talk that gives grace. Instead of dragging them through the mud, why not share something with them that you've learned during the week from the Bible that might help them along? Why not be a brother or sister to them? Whenever you tear others down, it only tears you down. It makes you rotten to the core. That kind of talk, Paul says, grieves the Holy Spirit of God. He switches for a moment in verse 30 from our relationships with one another to our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. Anytime we sin, whether it's in how we talk or in some other way, it causes the Holy Spirit deep sorrow. He is sensitive to all of those things. And it gets in the way of his power working in us. He wants more than anything to give us that power to live in a Christ-like way. But it's us who prevent them. Anything that we do behind closed doors or say under our breath or allow our eyes to look at or our minds to dwell on, the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit is sees all of it. Keeping that in mind can be a really practical way of helping us to avoid private sin. And to keep in mind how deeply he is hurt whenever we replace the new man with the rottenness of the old self. Whenever we basically take off the one who died for us and throw him away. What he loves to see instead is whenever we live sensitively to him, the way he is sensitive to us, carefully, in expectancy that Christ is coming back one day, and whenever we're eager to live up to that in our personal conduct and in private. And finally, Paul exhorts us to put off all kinds of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. Bitterness, wrath, anger, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Now, bitterness heads up this list because that's where all of those other sins really come from. It causes us to be consumed with anger, to slander, to be malicious. Bitterness comes from a heart that's not right towards God, a heart that has been deceived by the corruption of the old nature. So, we have to put bitterness away. Now, bitterness, much like gossip, is very seductive, isn't it? It's comfortable holding on to those feelings about someone whenever we believe that we've been hard done by. But then, look at what happens whenever our hearts foster bitterness. We inevitably become angry. We get agitated and frustrated. Eventually, we slander the person we're bitter about. We become malicious. We might even want to do them harm. Now, that doesn't look very much like the new man, does it? What you might have noticed about the old self in this whole section is that it always inevitably drags down not only the person themselves, but drags down other people with them. It corrupts not just you, but it corrupts everybody around you. And bitterness is a root that leads to all kinds of corruption. And that's like Adam. Adam's sin didn't just corrupt him. It corrupted everybody else. But that's not like Christ, is it? Christ was just the opposite. His righteousness made all of us right. Adam brought us down, but Christ brings us up. And that's the way that God wants all of his children to be with one another. Was Christ ever better? even when his own creation took him and nailed him to the cross? No. He prayed for the very ones who nailed him there. I wonder, would we ever do that? If there's a Christian guy who knew how much we liked a girl, but he went ahead and he asked her out anyway, would we pray for him? Might praying for that person be an antidote to bitterness. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the pattern of the Christ whose heart never once harbored bitterness, even when bitterness was justified. Give yourself and everything that makes you bitter over to Him, just like Christ entrusted Himself to His Father whenever He suffered. And remember that God was never bitter for all that we have done to Him, for all that we did to His Son. Remember how fully He forgave us whenever it was so undeserved. And as we make a habit of doing that, God begins a process in us of helping us to think correctly and giving us a character that's kind tender-hearted, and forgiving others. A character just like Jesus, even when he was on the cross, especially when he was on the cross. A type of character that brings others up instead of bringing them down. A type of character that unifies rather than fractures. So as we conclude, it's up to us to put off the old Adam and to put on the last Adam. The Spirit is just waiting to turn who we actually are into a daily reality, into a visible truth that touches the lives of other Christians in an amazing way. If we just make the effort to work it out in our relationships with one another and with Him. Put off the one who fell and drag the rest of humanity down with Him and put on the one who who succeeded where he failed, who raised all of us up with him, even to the very heights of heaven. May the Lord help us to be that way with one another, to live as who we are in Christ. Our Father, we thank you that even when we were so undeserving of your grace and your love, you took us as we were and you made us new. Your son went down into death to raise us up. He took all of our unrighteousness so that we could be right with you. Father, we thank you for who we now are in him. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us every day to take off that old self and to put on Christ, to imitate and emulate his perfect character. And Father, we pray for your spirit's help as we make this effort day by day, that he will gradually make us into people who resemble your beloved son. We pray these things for his glory and in his name, giving you thanks. Amen.